Good morning, family. Thanks for joining me today. Did you remember to spring forward one hour? Well, today is the fourth Sunday in Lent, the season of confession and preparation as we move closer and closer to Easter. All throughout church history, new converts have spent the season of Lent preparing for their initiation into the church. By the way, do you know what that initiation into the Christian faith is called? It's called baptism. Baptism is our entry into the life of faith. So in the early church, new believers or converts would discipline themselves during the season of Lent by fasting and praying and reading the scriptures. They would confess their sins and evaluate their lives in preparation for the waters of baptism on Easter morning. They would strip down, wade into the water, allow themselves to be drowned, a gesture of dying to their old way of life, and then be resurrected, brought up out of the water into new life and given new robes, and in some cases, a new name and a new identity. And their church family would walk with them through Lent and observe the same disciplines as a way of remembering their baptisms and deepening their own faith journey with Jesus. So Lent is our season of repentance and preparation so that we can walk with Jesus to Calvary, so that we can die with him, and ultimately be raised to new life on Resurrection Day. Lest you think that Lent is all about self-denial and discipline and bland meals, let me share with you this definition that a friend passed along to me a few years ago. Lent is 40 days granted to us in which to marvel at a love too great for words. I wish I could remember who said that, but isn't that amazing? Isn't that encouraging? The more time we spend with Jesus, the more we should be fascinated by his love for us. The more we should marvel at the greatness of his love for us, right? Lent is 40 days granted to us in which to marvel at a love too great for words. So let's continue our marveling today. We've been walking with Jesus on his way to Jerusalem. Last week, Jesus arrived in the heart of the holy city, and what did he do? He made a mess of things in the temple, remember? He made a whip and scared everyone half to death. He overturned the tables. He set the animals free. He kicked over the money boxes and coins went flying. It was an enormous mess. Such a great disturbance that everyone in Jerusalem was talking about it. Even the Pharisees. Especially the Pharisees. One of them, a man named Nicodemus, came to Jesus one night to question him. Maybe he came in an official capacity. Maybe he came on a personal errand. We don't know. But either way, Nicodemus and Jesus have a conversation that is recorded for us in John chapter 3. Let's hear Jesus's words in John chapter 3 verses 14 through 21. Hear the word of the Lord. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so must the human one be lifted up, so that everyone who believes in him will have eternal life. God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, 
so that everyone who believes in him won't perish, but will have eternal life. God didn't send his Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him isn't judged. Whoever doesn't believe in him is already judged because they don't believe in the name of God's only Son. This is the basis for judgment. The light came into the world, and people loved darkness more than the light, for their actions are evil. All who do wicked things hate the light and don't come to the light for fear that their actions will be exposed to the light. Whoever does the truth comes to the light so that it can be seen that their actions were done in God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. John 3.16 It can be found in a lot of places, but most of the time you won't find a quote of the text. You'll just see that citation of chapter and verse. Just the name John, followed by the number 3, a colon, and the number 16. It appears on placards at sporting events, on signs people post on their front lawns, on billboards, and even on the inside of the bottom rim of paper cups at some fast food restaurants. I saw it on the back of an electrician's work truck the other day. Professional athletes write John 3.16 on their shoes or on the tape around their wrists. Politicians claim it as their favorite Bible verse. On Amazon.com today, you can find books entitled 316, The Numbers of Hope, and The 316 Promise. It seems that a lot of people are fixated with John 316. Martin Luther, the great reformer, famously called John 316 the gospel in miniature. That means that John 316 is the very heart of our Christian faith. I probably don't have to recite it for you, because you probably already know it by heart, right? But here it goes. God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, so that everyone who believes in him won't perish, but will have eternal life. That's the very heart of our faith, isn't it? God loves the world. Make sure you hear this. God loves the world. The giving of his son part resonates with parents who sacrifice for their children. It registers with soldiers who sacrifice for their country. It echoes with anyone who sacrifices anything out of love for another. And the idea that everyone may have eternal life? Well, that's the basic Christian hope, right? We can have the life of God. This all makes sense in other contexts, too. I mean, what parents wouldn't want the very best for their children? What manager wants anything but the very best outcome? Well, eternal life is the very best God has to offer. And all this sacrifice, this giving of one's best, it flows from one simple thing, love. But not just any love, it's God's love for us. We call this love agape or agape. It's from the Greek word agapeo. It means a sacrificial love that voluntarily suffers inconvenience, discomfort, and even death for the benefit of another 
without expecting anything in return. It's more than brotherly love or even parental love. It's the kind of love God has for us. Do you know what this means? Because of his loving nature, God cannot love you a little. He has to love you a lot. God cannot give you a little love. He has to give you all his love. When you think about it, God's love for you and for the world is nothing short of miraculous. Now, we believe that God created the world, so that accounts for some of it, right? We tend to like the things we create, don't we? Like when we bake a pie or build a table or paint a picture, we tend to like what we create. But we humans are infuriatingly, stubbornly rebellious, aren't we? We insist on going our way, doing things the way we want. We ignore God's plan. We bargain with God's commands. And our tendency is to fight against God's justice. That's why Martin Luther once said, If I were as our Lord God, and these vile people were as disobedient as they now are, I would knock the world to pieces. And you might think God would do just that. Knock the world to pieces. Knock Congress to pieces. Knock the other party to pieces. Knock the whatever to pieces. You, you can fill in the blank. And that's not all. Each and every one of us is quite capable of doing the most vile sorts of things. And sometimes we do. We go against God. We offend. We break laws. We sin. After all, who among us has not done what we ought not to have done? or left undone what we ought to have done? Who has not, from time to time, denied God's goodness in others, in ourselves, or in the world around us? Maybe God should knock us to pieces, too. You see, the miracle is that God doesn't. Instead, God loves us. And in Jesus, we find a God who is not so much interested in knocking people or things to pieces. He doesn't seem much worried about retribution or punishment, nor is he much invested in inflicting a penalty for wrongdoing, is he? No, because that's us, not God. If we pay close attention, we find a God who seeks to forgive, a God who prioritizes restoration and justice. Isn't that why Jesus told stories about good shepherds? He is the God who seeks to repair the hurt, not inflict more, because he loves us. God loves us too much to make us cower in fear. God loves us too much to make us suffer or to suffer any more than we already do. And that's good news for us. And for all the world, God loves us no matter what. Now, this does not mean we should go around deliberately committing sins and expecting to be forgiven. It does mean that when we cause offense, God will forgive. But we may also have to pay the earthly penalty for our actions. When we do things that are wrong, irresponsible, or even dangerous, we can pray for and receive God's forgiveness. But we should also expect to pay for those bad actions, right? And as followers of Jesus, we should be prepared to pay that price 
and to make the necessary apology, to restore what was taken, to serve those we may have harmed. The Apostle Paul told the Ephesians that God is rich in mercy. He brought us to life with Christ while we were dead as a result of those things that we did wrong. He did this because of the great love that he has for us. You are saved by God's grace. When we sin, we sin against God, against ourselves, and against others. Yet God still loves us. In fact, there is nothing we can do to make God stop loving us or to make God love us more. You know, I am not sure that we will ever comprehend the depth of his love for us. But when we begin to appreciate this love, it changes our lives. It leads us to take responsibility for our actions, to seek healing for those we have wronged, and to strive to reflect the very image of God in which we are all created by loving others as God loves us. Jesus put it this way, God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that everyone who believes in him won't perish but will have eternal life. And we are called, in fact, Jesus invites us to help him transform this world through love, to bring about what Jesus called the kingdom of God. Will you join with me in resolving to pray, to work, and to give in order to make it so, by seeking reconciliation, not punishment, by sacrificing for the good of others, by allowing God to fill us with his love so that we can love others with reckless abandon the way that Jesus loves? Let's pray. Good and gentle God, God of love and compassion, God of grace and mercy, thank you for loving us. Thank you for caring for us. Help us to know your love in deeper ways, and in doing so, help us to become more loving, more forgiving, more patient, more understanding, just like Jesus. Send us someone to love this week. Send us to someone who needs a listening ear or a shoulder to cry on. Help us to reflect your indescribable love for each and every person on this planet. As the pandemic continues, we pray for those battling COVID-19. We ask for your healing and protection. We are tired, frustrated, and exhausted. Give us strength and wisdom to navigate these trying days. Now using the words debts and debtors, let us pray with boldness the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Well, thanks for joining me today. Now, your job this week is to love at least three people. But make sure at least one of them doesn't deserve it, because everyone needs love, and everyone needs to know that God loves them no matter what. Don't let your guard down. 
And don't let these demanding days rob you of your joy. With Jesus, we always, always, always have hope. Now receive these words of benediction. The Lord bless you and protect you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his face to you and grant you his peace. Amen. Amen.